0: Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burrus. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Dr. Carl L. Hart, the Ziff Professor of Psychology in the Departments of Psychology and Psychiatry at Columbia University. His new book is Drug Use for Grownups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Dr. Hart. Thank you for having me, Trevor and Aaron. I'd like to start with a question that I pose to audiences when I give talks on drug policy, which is, why do heroin addicts get cages and alcoholics get treatment?
1: Then <laughs> um, I don't know how to answer that. You know, that's that's a loaded question. There's a lot of shit that question. I, I I don't know. You know, it all depends. Um, uh, just in terms of how we treat addiction in this country, it's not very progressive or even humane. So uh, or very, or not even good medicine. Maybe it has something to do with our limited uh, skill set or uh, knowledge in medicine. Uh, not that the knowledge isn't out there, but our unwillingness to accept good knowledge and good science. Maybe that's what it has to do with.
0: Well, but historically, too, I mean, this this question, you get into it a bit in your book, that the, the way the users of each of those drugs are perceived uh, seems to be a crucial, crucial thing. And that historically, we have not been very kind to the image of heroin users.
1: Yeah, no, that that's right. One of the things that we have done with drugs is that we've used it as a tool, particularly some drugs, as a tool to vilify certain people in our society, certain groups that we don't like. Uh, we use alcohol to vilify the Germans. We did do that, the First World War. Um, and heroin's vilification of its users just has been long lasting. So yeah, that's why. That's one of the reasons, yeah.
2: We are in the middle of an opioid epidemic. It's it's striking driving through the states around Virginia and seeing them just filled with billboards for opioid addiction hotlines that I I don't ever remember seeing and and we hearing constant stories. And so is it the wrong time to be talking about the question of legalizing Opioids.
1: <laughs> so let's think. Of, let's take West Virginia for an example. Um, so West Virginia has some real problems: economic problems, uh, environmental problems, uh, real problems. And one way to sweep those problems under the carpet is to blame opioids and heroin and the rest of these drugs. Like you said, we're having an opioid epidemic. Uh, I, I don't know how you're defining opioid epidemic. It is true that some people die from drug-related overdoses, but rarely do people die from a single opioid alone. That rarely happens. And uh, we also know that people get in trouble with opioids or they're more likely to get in trouble with opioids when they have things like loss of income, especially when their income was uh, supporting a family, uh, also securing their role in that community. Now that's gone. So let's just think about DuPont and all the damage that corporation did to that community. We don't blame DuPont. We blame heroin or some other drug Uh, So these drugs, opioids, just become a a scapegoat for those corporations that really should be blamed for the carnage that is going on in places like West Virginia, um, Michigan, Ohio. All of these corporations who have poisoned the land, taken away the jobs, and then we say, look at those opioids, let's go after those opioids. Um, So I'm trying to help people in those places understand it ain't the opioids. It's these other things. And if anything, the opioids provide some relief from the horrible conditions under which you find yourself these days.
0: Your own uh, history, uh, getting into drug research, uh, but when you, you talk about it more in your previous book, High Price, but when you first got into drug research, you had a very dib- different image of drugs and what they did to, uh, to people, Correct.
1: That's true. You know, I, I, I was like those people of West Virginia. I thought that at the time, crack cocaine uh, had destroyed communities from, like the ones from which I came. And so I blamed crack. I blamed all these other drugs. Um, but then when I started to look at the evidence more closely, I started to see that, wait a second, something's not something doesn't fit. Uh give you one example. We blame crack for high unemployment rates. The highest unemployment rates in the United States was 1982, and our community certainly felt that. Crack didn't appear in places like Miami, like where I'm from, until late 1985, early 1986. Uh, but yet we blame crack for the high unemployment rates that were already there. So that's just one example how the data just doesn't fit. And now there isn't this sort of big concern about crack. But the unemployment is still there and many of the problems are still there. Uh, So it lets you know that it ain't the drugs. It's something else. The drugs are just convenient scapegoats for politicians to point to and uh, for them to look like they're heroes. Because it's like all they have to say is we're going to put more cops on the street to remove those drugs out of your community. There they immediately They increase some jobs for select groups of people, and those jobs are dependent upon locking up other people in that community. Um, uh, And so uh, politicians are good for four years, another four years, whereas um, the real problems, they still remain.
2: When you say that we're placing too much emphasis on the the harm of the drugs, do you mean – in comparison to other things, or that we are, and I mean, we're doing both of these simultaneously, that we are overstating the actual, say, physical and addictive harmfulness of the drugs?
1: Yeah, so let's just think about this for a second. If we take any drug, from heroin to marijuana to cocaine, whatever the drug, the vast majority of the users of that drug they don't have a problem. They are responsible people taking care of their families. They're doing uh, all the things that we expect people to do, adults to do in a society. If that's the case, if you've got the vast majority of any drug, any vast majority user of any drugs, they're OK. You don't have these problems. Then it tells you that it's not the drug. It's something else. I mean, we can look at the individuals, we can look at the conditions, and then we start to look at the conditions and individual, we start to really start to see some clues about what's going on. We know that people who are, who have co occurring illnesses, whether it's like a pain uh, problem or whether it's a psychiatric problem, like a, like a, depression, anxiety, those people are more likely to have problems with opioids and other things. They are also more likely to have problems with paying their bills. And so if you treat those co-occurring illnesses, now you deal with some of the things that you have attributed to opioids or some other drug. Uh, And then we can think about those people who they once were pillars of their community. They had good jobs. They were middle class. GM, the factory left, went to Mexico. Uh, Now that person uh, doesn't have that well-paying job. That person is not respected as well as much in that community. Uh, Their sense of somebody has been diminished. And the impact of that is that it can be tremendous. But we fail to get at those issues when we say the problem is heroin or the problem is something else, some other drug, as opposed to focusing on Uh, Let's make sure people are treated like people,
0: like humans. Uh, Let's make sure adults have gainful employment. Now, I'm a product of drug abuse resistance education, uh, the D.A.R.E. program, uh, which uh, taught me a lot of things about drugs. Um, It taught me that you could get addicted to heroin if you take it once. Also, crack. I think I think that, especially in the eighties, the discussion of being addicted to crack, and and that sounds a little bit hyperbolic. But like, but there's got to be something about heroin rather than say aspirin that would cause addiction, right? It does give you happy feelings. I mean, the opiates always make me nauseous, but I know for some people they give them happy feelings. So we can't discard the drug. And heroin itself seems to be extremely given more intense. Feelings than morphine, which gives more intense feelings than just regular opium, and fentanyl gives more intense feelings. So there's something going on there, right?
1: Yeah, there there is. Uh, the heroin is good at producing euphoria, like you nicely destri- described. But please understand that heroin and morphine are essentially the same drug. Um, in fact, they you know the. They, uh, actions on the brain, they're the same. Uh, the bear Aspirin Company in 1874 put two acid groups on morphine, and then voila, that's heroin. Although the acid groups, the, the, they don't have any effects um, not on the brain or anything. So heroin is morphine. Uh, now, it's true that heroin and morphine can produce euphoria. So that means that people might want it more, and that means that they might uh, go to go to some great lengths to get it. But please understand, um, having an orgasm is a lovely thing, and that's still like one of the best things. Uh, and and people will go to some great lengths to do to experience that. Uh, and some people get in trouble with that sort of thing but the vast majority of people don't and the same is true with heroin heroin is not like some pleasure that is so overwhelming that you'll do anything to get it that's just nonsense I know that's how people show it in films in the media but it's just nonsense I mean it's just like uh, we think about alcohol alcohol produces a lot of pleasure uh, for some people but you know you, you there's a time and place for it and we don't have to go through great to great lengths to get alcohol because it's legal, because uh, we can go and, and get it if we are a certain age and all of these sorts of things. The same could be said if we, if we legalized heroin, but it's not overwhelmingly positive such that you are going to knock over the head of your parent or someone, um, uh, someone who is not likely to do that. It's not going to do that. But it's true. There are people who use heroin and they've committed some crimes. They would have committed those crimes whether they use heroin or not. Uh, and to blame heroin is uh, short-sighted, naive, and adolescent. Like That's what we do in this country. We have drug discussions. We are we're adolescents, and it's insulting to somebody who has been trying to grow up.
2: So, if I understand correctly, then what you're saying is we're essentially getting the lines of causation wrong in terms, or the direction of causation wrong in terms of the destructiveness of what we perceive to be illegal drug use. So, are the the story we get told, the story we hear in dare, or in the you know? Very special episodes of sitcoms and so on is that you have like the good kid who then has a run in in a back alley with some bad kids who maybe have cool jean jackets or something, and they talk him into taking a hit. And then his life is destroyed and we can we watch the life spin out, whether it's like the reefer madness, you know, driving your car too fast or like he stops doing his homework or something. And and the drug is the thing that's directly causing it. Um, but if I understand what you're saying, you think the the actual story, maybe not all of the time, but the actual story more of the time is that there are bad things in people's lives, things that have made them unhappy. and the drugs are a way out of that and so the destructiveness but is there is there a feedback loop like that once you start using the drugs to get out the the addictive and physical properties of the drugs make it harder to get out
1: so, uh, if, 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 I liked what you said. Uh, so, I don't want to screw that up too much because it was it was it was comical actually. But um, I don't want to screw it up. Uh, but let's, if I can, please. I, I, I like to separate like physical dependence from just this thing we call uh, substance use disorder. That's addiction, uh, according to the uh, DSM. That's a Diagnostic Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. So physical dependence is when you take a drug uh, for some extended period of time. And then if you abruptly discontinue that the use of that drugs, your, your body reacts uh, with these symptoms, like what heroin be like a flu like symptoms, you might vomit, you might have diarrhea, you might have uh, muscle aches, you might have uh, some symptoms that make you feel unpleasant. That's that's physical dependence. You can see that with something like an antidepressant. If someone has been taking an antidepressant for an extended period of time, and they abruptly discontinue, you can see some withdrawal symptoms. You can see that with nicotine. You can see that with a number of drugs. But that's not what we call addiction. That's not substance use disorder. That's just uh, the body uh, having a normal response. You certainly get that with heroin. But when you get that with something like alcohol, it can be life-threatening. So alcohol withdrawal can kill you. Heroin withdrawal, rarely, or it, it's hard to die from a heroin withdrawal. Um, um, and so I want to separate that. Now, if we think about heroin uh, use disorder, addiction, if you will, it's certainly possible. But the vast majority of people who use heroin, do not meet criteria for heroin addiction. And this notion that one hit and then you're hooked is nonsense because addiction by definition means that you have to put in work. It requires work. You have to do it multiple times, several times, and you repeated uh, unsuccessful attempts at quitting and those sorts of things. And you have this disruption of your life function. Now, uh, given that the majority of the users who use heroin don't become addic- addicted, it tells us that we have to look beyond the drug. And let's look in that person's environment. Let's look uh, at, at the individual, what's going on. And now that might provide some clues about why that person is addicted to heroin or anything else. And so to uniquely blame heroin would be short-sighted and inaccurate if people don't do that. So in other words, addiction has almost nothing to do with the drug, almost nothing to do with the drug. But all of our focus is on the drugs and our focus is on the drug because the majority of people in America haven't used heroin. So we can say some crazy stuff about heroin and be believed, just like we said some crazy stuff about marijuana. Like marijuana use leads to a matricide. You'll, you'll kill your mother. We said all of these things and we were believed. But you can't do that today because more than half of American adults have used marijuana. And so you can't tell that lie anymore and be believed. But you can tell a lie that heroin is so addictive, you won't want anything else in your life. I mean, you're talking to somebody who is identified me as a heroin user. Um, and
0: I can take it or leave it. Uh, and that's uh, that's how life is. The part of your book that is just like coming out essentially as a heroin user is like one of the big important parts of it where, and it's something that I've said a lot to different audiences where it's interesting how we treat a certain story about using a drug. Like I could come in and be like, oh man, I'm feeling sick because this weekend I got really drunk and I passed out in the street. Right. And then woke up and I apparently had ordered a pizza and banged my knee somewhere. And people tell those stories and say, okay, that's a, you know, you you really had a good one. But if I said the same thing where I was like, what'd you do this weekend? I said, well, you know, I I did a bunch of heroin and then passed out in the street and banged my knee and woke up and had a bunch of pizzas. Then they're going to be looking at you and saying, what's wrong with this guy? This guy is clearly a bad person because I've, I've learned about heroin and there's, there's no good that comes from it. Uh, and so you're here to say there, there is but positives to even heroin use, correct?
1: Absolutely, there are. Look, if if there weren't positive to heroin use, I assure you, nobody would continue to do it. But uh, heroin use, there are so uh, the majority effects associated with heroin use are positive. Uh even uh, b- though we have bad substance and then you have these increased likelihood of negative effects, uh, like in law, with your interactions with law enforcement, you might get arrested, you have to hide and you might get tainted heroin, all of those. So sort of, even in the face of those things, uh, folks who manage to get heroin, good heroin, uh, can have a tremendous amount of positive effects, namely. Um, uh, subjective effects like uh, one might become uh, with a nice dose of heroin become more man- magnanimous. You're more forgiven and, and you are more tolerant of a society that treats you like a pariah even though you know you know that you're a good person and you are only seeking to be the best person you can be but this society uh, has vilified you unjustly so and you are able to overlook that and be forgiving and be caring and be more empathetic all of these sorts of things are things that we claim to value in this society and certainly someone who are who's using heroin certainly taps into these things particularly if they have been thinking about these things trying to develop as a person oh it can be a beautiful thing
2: it seems then i can imagine a cultural change way out of this then, that if we take the story of alcohol, we take the story of marijuana and now of heroin, that that what you're saying is alcohol is actually pretty bad. Marijuana, there's not much bad about it at all, but we were told all these lies and then enough people used it that- we became convinced the lies were in fact lies, and then the kind of cultural and then legal change followed on from that. Um, and it, it also seems like there's always going to be people who, you know, there's a lot of people who would not take what you're saying to heart and go out and try heroin because it is they're they're either scared or it's illegal. They don't know how to get it. They're afraid of the repercussions and so on. But there's always going to be people who are willing to do that.
1: Let's be clear, like. Uh... Um, I don't want anybody to take what I'm saying and go out and do heroin based on that. That would be stupid. That would be like somebody saying, uh, I'm saying flying is great. Oh, I'm going to go out and get an airplane and fly. That's some stupid shit. I mean, so we are having an adult conversation and we expect people to behave as such. I mean, so what we're saying is we're having the conversation to open people's minds. To look into this further, to learn about it to the point where, you know, you can make an informed decision. That's what we're doing. Um, uh, How we go to the frame of this conversation leads to people using drugs. That's some American adolescent bullshit. And that's not what we're here to do, right?
2: Right. I'm not saying that's what we're doing. What I'm saying is that there's this cultural fear and there's also... So there are people who already would be interested in trying it, but there's external factors that kind of prevent them from doing it in a way that like, you know, 10 years ago before marijuana was legalized in a lot of places, people were less worried about trying that because they knew that how it was easier and there were less repercussions and so on. Um, and so it seems like then if if the marijuana story just repeats, you know, that that people start trying other things as well. That the marijuana story repeats for heroin. Heroin seems like in most people's minds, like the hard drug, right? Like that's the one when, when we at the Cato Institute talk about legalizing drugs, the response is like, oh, you want to legalize heroin, you know, um, and, and maybe there are a handful like PCP or something that people might be more scared of. But, you know, heroin that it feels like if we can get to the point where people are thinking about heroin specifically the way they think about marijuana, then the war on drugs is done.
1: Yeah. So that's, thank you. That's a great, great point. Let So let's just be clear. Like one of the things you said about alcohol, alcohol is bad, whatever. Let's be clear. None of these drugs are bad or good. That's not the way to look at alcohol is an excellent drug uh, under some conditions. Alcohol is the only one of these drugs that we're talking about that you can take it orally and dose yourself and titrate. You know, you have this level that you feel comfortable with because alcohol is Chemical properties are such that it's such a small molecule, there is essentially no blood-brain barrier. So that means that what's in the blood, you're drinking, and what's in the blood is in the brain, like immediately. Uh, There's no other drug, recreational drug, that's like that. So its properties are ideal for recreational oral use. And so in that that sense, it's good. As we get older, uh, we start to worry about our liver. We start to worry about a number of things We might have to shift our drug use to something that's not as potentially toxic to the liver, away from alcohol to something else. And so we have to be smart about these things. You know, we can think about um, uh, when we were younger, we played athletics, some athletic sport. You know, now we can't play it. We have to coach it. It's the same sort of thing. We're making these transitions as we get older without drug use, just like we do with anything else in our society. So heroin can be ideal in certain situations. If only we packaged it right, provided the right amount of education, such that we used the appropriate route of administration for that drug. And for many of us, it would not be intravenous. It would be something like intranasal. It would be something else. Uh, the reason why people use intravenous, in part because uh the varying quality of the drug, and you don't, you want to get the biggest bang for your Fuck. And that that sort of pressure, that pressure brought on by the restricting or the uh, forbidding of heroin actually increases the dangers of the drug. And so all of these things need to be taken into consideration. Um, and then when we do that, we start to realize a drug isn't good or bad we can enhance the positive effects and decrease or minimize the negative effects based on what we do.
0: In the in one of the more interesting chapters of your book, when you discussed the National Institute of Drug Abuse, um, and you are a prominent professor at a prominent American university, uh, saying things that <clears throat> I think might make them mad, um, it, uh, <laughs> maybe at least the director, Norvoco, uh, but <laughs> – how has the National Institute of Drug Abuse like, kind of contributed to this, uni- this unified view of drugs and how we have to approach them? And, and how has been your relationship with them in the past? Yeah,
1: you can imagine. Well, so the National Institute uh, on Drug Abuse mission used to be until like a year or two ago, it was to bring to bear the nation's sort of mm-hmm. scientific resources uh, to focus on drug addiction and drug abuse. So the negative effects, if the vast majority of effects that occur after these drugs are positive and you're only focused on a negative, you can see how that will skew the scientific literature and therefore our perspective as a society. And that's what the National Institute on Drug Abuse has done and knowingly and willingly done because they, have, they were incentivized to do as such. And that's the thing that I found most abhorrent as a scientist. When we start to bring this to the attention of other scientists, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, uh, they ignore it and say, well, that's not our mission, and say, well, we're doing potentially more harm uh, by going through this path uh, than actually looking at all of the totality of the data. And so they changed their mission recently. Uh, I think because of the, this pressure we brought on them. But um, it will be interesting to see if the behavior changes.
0: You discuss the well, at least the way that I was going to say scientific mistakes, but they're not. They're just the way that the papers are done. And uh, some of these examples where you the way the headlines work, this idea that uh, marijuana permanently affects your brain, or you know, or methamphetamine, or something. Um, for, I mean, in the crib should note version, like those are things that we should always be skeptical of, it sounds like, in the, in the popular science viewpoint. Um, unless they're a really good study, you know, which actually deals with the different ins and outs. So how how do those things come together? And why are people so kind of flippant about putting these things out that don't actually even say what they claim to be said or what journalists say about it?
1: as long as you are holding the party line and the party line is that drugs are bad and if you are uh, your verbal behavior is consistent with the party line you have less of uh less likelihood of someone challenging that perspective but when you're going against the party line as i am and now you open yourself up to be challenged uh, and so you have to be prepared to deal with the challenges. And that's not necessarily pleasant, particularly for somebody who is just trying to have a career, trying to go about their life uh, and trying to publish papers, trying to get uh, promoted and tenured and all of these things. So scientists, uh, by nature, are risk averse. And so um, I think that's what has happened. People have just decided that, look, uh, it's easier just to go along and, um, you're rewarded and you don't stand out. You know, I think the Japanese has, have this saying that the nail that sticks up gets whacked. And, and so that's how, uh, I think science or scientists have, have been thinking about it. But if we can for a second, please think about I, the thing that really Uh, Clue me in is when I started to like reread American history as an adult, not like the kids, they make you like uh, learn the Declaration of Independence and those things. But as an adult, when I looked at this, it's some profound stuff that these, the founding fathers produced. This notion of we all have uh, these three birthrights, at least life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So long as you don't disrupt anybody else's ability to do the same. That's some profound stuff. It means that you can live your life how you see fit. It's like, that's all we want as adults. We just wanna live how we see fit. We just wanna be left alone to our own devices. And as long as we're not bothering anyone else, um, I, I participate in my community, I contribute, I do all of these things to help other folks. And now some person who knows less than pharmacology than I do is going to tell me I can't alter my consciousness with my wife or whatever I decide to do. It's insulting. I think every American should be insulted. And so I am so, I was so shocked as I read deeper at how willingly Americans gave up these rights. And it's like, well, you can give up you can give up your rights, but you have no right to sacrifice mine. And that's why I wrote this book, and why I am out here because um, I want my rights.
2: Do scientists working in this area the the threats to career, to prestige, to reputation, and all of that are they? Like So when you talk to other scientists who are working in this area, doing this kind of research, do you get from them, like, I wish I could be saying different, I wish I could be giving a new, more nuanced view on drug use or effects and so on, but I fear for this? Or is it more that there's kind of the, a selection effect so that the people who get into this stuff are the ones who've been filtered through and kind of already believe the, the line that we all grew up with in school?
1: So there, are, there, as you might imagine, there are, there are a variety of folks. There is a large number of people who use drugs, who use these drugs, and they told a the party lie. And they believe in exceptionalism. Like, I'm special, and so I can do this, but not for the masses. And that's, you know, that's really insulting, but a lot of people believe that. Uh, And so you have the the exceptionalism, and then you have a a faction that believes that, well, it's better to err on the side of caution. We never know what's going to happen in the future, so you err on the side of caution. That's okay, if there are not negative or uh, potential negative outcomes that outweigh that approach. And there are far more, uh, potential negative outcomes by erring, erring on the side of caution. One of the things we've done is that we have completely, uh, vilified these drugs such that we vilify the people who use them. And we increase the likelihood that well, we facilitate those those people coming under criminal justice control. And, uh, and so the cost to them are incalculable. And so the scientists don't have to think about that sort of thing. And that's one of the things that I have to think about, particularly when I see that kind of carnage all around me from my neighborhoods and that sort of thing. Um, so uh, there are a variety of positions in science. Some... Uh, Some people come to me and say, um, you know, I agree with you. And, you know, and uh, I don't know how to step out. Uh, And so they're struggling with stepping out. Um, And so uh, hopefully they figure it out. Hopefully uh, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. But I don't really look for my salvation among scientists. I look for my salvation among the American people. Um, and you present it to the American people and they will do what they will.
0: And then that's all I can do. That's all I'm, I'm trying to do. One of the realizations I've had as I studied drug policy over the years is that if you drill down deep enough into the issues, why are these substances prohibited versus these substances that are allowed? If you drill down into it, you end up kind of at a strange question, which is what is the difference between a drug – is it an illicit drug and medicine and, and who decides that question. And then you look at, and you mentioned earlier antidepressants and things like benzodiazepines, for example, which are highly, highly chemical dependent inducing substances. And they're also happy pills. People casually reference their happy pills, you know, and they use them compulsively to, you know, make their life better. That's okay. But if you do that with other drugs that are illegal, it's not okay. Has that ever struck you? Is, is the irony there too? Because almost everything applies to those those drugs that a person in a white coat tells you to use. And we could maybe why couldn't we get to a point where a person in a white coat says, "Here's a hero, here's a pill of opium. Take as needed as anxiety develops," which is what they say about Xanax.
1: Oh, trust me, uh, those people, the people who are privileged in our society, they have their white coat people and they are getting these drugs, uh, whether they're amphetamines, whether they're opioids, whether they're benzodiazepines, whatever they are, people, they have access. And that's how uh, we've had throughout our, our history. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it struck me as uh, strange a long time ago, but uh, today uh, it's just I, it's what we do. Uh, we privileged people have access, other people don't. And I'm trying to help people to see that that's just uh, that's not right. But we can think about our presidents. Uh, we have a protocol for presidents and their drug use. They have stimulants uh, in the day to wake up and sedatives at night to go to bed. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember back in the late 80s, early 90s, George Bush won came under attack for his sleeping med. He, had, he was on a benzo called triazolam, which is Halcyon. Halcyon had got started to get a bad reputation, uh, like all sleeping pills do, and it's not the pills, it's the folks who and the conditions. But and once they're touted as, oh, they're miracle drugs, and then you can be sure that they're going to be uh, vilified. And Halcyon was vilified. George Bush, President Bush, had been taking uh, this uh, Halcyon for a number of years without problems, and he was happy with it. And the press was starting to dog him about him using Halcyon. And he was like, why should I change my medication that works? And, and he was right, uh, but you, uh, we know that presidents and people who are movers and shakers in our society, uh, they use substances to uh, produce better, to be alert, uh, to go to sleep. Uh you ever gone to a concert, you've ever gone to a show, have a performer, uh, I assure you, Um, They are psychoactively altered um, in some way or another. And you want them to be psychoactively altered so they can be alert and present for your show. You know, it's like this person is on tour. They've been in all of these cities over this short period of time. Their body is saying you need to sleep. But you're saying, I pay for a ticket. Uh, and so it's like, you take that amphetamine, you take that cocaine so you can perform for me. And, but we don't want to deal with that as a society, but that's how it works.
0: What's wrong with the term? Uh, I thought this chapter was v- very interesting because I've worked in the harm reduction sphere uh, to uh, extent, uh, filed briefs and cases about safe injection sites. I'm a lawyer personally who do p- drug policy and also held conferences on harm reduction, which is like the, was the big kind of over the last decade, twenty years growth in the in how we talk about this. But you criticize the the concept of just saying of at least saying harm reduction.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I just wanted people to think about using that term. And uh, the term is just what we do in harm reduction It's just common sense. And so uh, it's just basic education uh, or it's just providing services to people in need. Uh, but we marry the term harm reduction to drugs. So like our number one goal is to reduce harm that's not our number one goal when we're talking about drugs I know what I think about using drugs my number one goal is to alter my consciousness to enhance pleasure and not to reduce harm that's not the number one goal and that's not the only thing that's associated with this the harm is a is a it's one of those minor one of those relatively rare things um, but we We make, by using the term harm reduction, we bring the harms up to a prominent position and we pair it with drugs repeatedly, and that shapes how we think and act and behave around drugs. And so that's what I'm just trying to get the community to think about. Uh, And then also when we think about supervised injection facilities or consumption facilities, um, the people in the field, harm reduction field, they feel that, though that this is progressive uh, and they're doing something good. And I'm uh, trying to say to folks, it's like, it's not. uh, And it's not related to drugs. It's like, because if you have somebody who's using drugs, any of us, I I know I don't want to go to a public space to use my drugs. If I had a home, I would go to my home. So how about we work on getting these people's people homes and then if you get that's the problem their housing is the problem not their drug use but we pretend the drug use is the problem and when you do that now you have castigated all of us who use drugs as if that's a thing and it's like no focus on what the issue is this person doesn't have a home. this person doesn't have health care this person doesn't have all of these things but we're calling it a drug problem that is that's part of the problem
2: How much of the continued embrace of the war on drugs, locking people up, preventing research into this stuff and so on, is is class and race-based othering and discrimination? You you, You hear the line like, the cops can bust a whole bunch of people, harass a whole bunch of people in the street for using, buying, selling drugs in Anacostia in D.C., but if they started doing the same thing in Georgetown, opinions would change really quickly. And that seems to be this kind of constant thing is, you know, and the the opioid crisis became national news when it was white communities that were getting hit, but there was less interest when black communities and so on like is is a lot of this simply that we we just can't look past these class and race differences. And so we want to just punish people who we think are, are different than us or lower status or so on.
1: Yeah. So if we could go back a little bit to the uh, Rust Belt, like the West Virginia Michigan, Ohio, we think about all of those jobs that left uh, and what are we going to do? Uh, one of the things that we have agreed to do is to make the War on Drugs uh, our jobs program, so that. So the War on Drugs is a jobs program. And if we think about it as a jobs program, so we're thinking about... What do you mean, jobs? Well, we created jobs in law enforcement, law enforcement primarily for uh, uh, white folks who were less well educated in some cases. But it's also jobs programs for the prison sort of industry, the industries that have prop- been propped up around prisons like hotels, restaurants, all of those. It's, it's this jobs program. And now now we think about it and from that perspective we know that uh it's incumbent upon us to make sure that the commodities in which this sort of industry uh, is built on bodies behind bars uh are primarily black and brown because you can do that you can put black and brown bodies behind bars without too much of a fuss from the broader society, because the broader society is already susceptible in believing that those people are somehow less moral, somehow uh, less than we are. And so we can get away with that for some period of time. And we have gotten away with it for some period of time. Now the society is now being forced to kind of rethink this and and, and reevaluate this. Uh, Although we haven't really made many changes, we have tinkered around the edges. uh, But that means that the society still has time to figure out how do you shift those jobs? How do you make sure people stay employed who are in this sort of jobs program? Without being too inconsistent with this notion that we live in a democracy and we care about our people. And that's what we're struggling with now. So you have people on the left, the right, they're all talking about criminal justice reform there's really nothing to discuss. But we're talking about it because we still haven't figured out how to replace those jobs or how do we redirect the efforts of the people who have benefited. Because we talk about the war on drugs like it's been a failure when, in fact, it's been a huge success. I mean, for a number of people. I mean, you wouldn't be talking to me if it was not for the war on drugs. My career is predicated on the war on drugs. I mean, I got paid, essentially, to get a PhD to study drugs, uh, because of the war on drugs. Uh, and so many of us, we benefited handsomely. And so the question is, how do you, how do you re- replace those jobs? How do you shift the focus uh, of those individuals who's working in this job program?
0: In 1938, a man named Henry Smith Williams wrote a book that you might be familiar with called "Drug Addicts Are Human Beings," uh, which is a remarkable book.
1: I'm afraid I don't know it. Thank you for saying that.
0: Well, I'll have to. I'll have to send you. It's it's available digitally. But your book kind of reminds me of almost a, a updated version to some extent of what this what his book was about. Um, ultimately, is that the goal to? make people realize, I mean, the, dr- the drug users, drug addicts are human beings, and, and to get people to go you know, come out of the closet, say, I use these drugs, I do it responsibly. its It seems at the end of the day, that's what we're looking for. These people are human beings.
1: Yeah, ultimately, for me, man, uh, I, I really got a profound appreciation for our founding documents, and what these folks were trying to produce here. And the, with the understanding that we we are not there, and they knew we weren't there. I mean, they had their own flaws, those guys themselves. Uh, and society, it just gives society something to aim for. And I'm trying to, I'm an expert on drugs, so I'm trying to make sure that my area is consistent with the promise. The practice of my area uh, is consistent with the promise uh, that uh, to American citizens. That's what I'm trying to do there. Uh, The notion of people getting, or my ask that people get out of the closet, particularly middle class privileged people get out of the closet, that ask is based on the fact that many people come up and say, what can I do? And so I wanted to give them something simple that they can do at Thanksgiving with their family come out of the closet in their small circle um, at a bi- on a bigger scale but it's something that everyone can do and we're all participating and you don't have to know how to write you don't have to be the most charismatic person you don't have to do any be all, any of those things all you have to do is just say Hey, you know, I'm one of those people. So hopefully your circle is less likely to vilify somebody for simply using a substance.
2: Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.